Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Happy Hanukkah and Chag Sameach. Also, Merry Almost Christmas. 2022 is almost over, so you know what that means. The second annual Israel Policy Pod End of Year Awards. Truly a tradition unlike any other. Like last year, I'll be joined by Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, and Shira Efron, IPF's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research. It's actually rare that the Israeli calendar and the Gregorian calendar sync up, but this year it happened. By the end of 2022, i.e. next week, we should have a new government in Israel, so that means the new year will usher in a new and arguably very different period in Israeli history. The end-of-year awards are a good gimmick. Did I say gimmick? I meant a very, very prestigious ceremony. To take stock, sum up, and look ahead. And that's what I'll be doing with Michael and Shira. In the spirit of the season two, and on a more personal note, I'd just like to thank all the guests that have come on over the past 12 months, my first full year hosting the Israel Policy Pod. I won't list all the guests because I don't want to leave anyone out, but from Israeli politics to Palestinian politics, the Ukraine war and the Biden visit, elections and escalations and everything else that happened during this crazy year, it was a real treat and a real privilege to have on all the various journalists, analysts, diplomats and politicians that have shared their time and insights with me and through me to all of you. The idea when I first started hosting the pod was really to bring the smart people and voices on Israeli affairs that I myself speak to or want to speak to and create a space uh, for an in-depth, free-flowing, long-form conversation on the most relevant and the most pertinent issues of our day. And sometimes even about the guests personally and their oftentimes very interesting careers. It's still all a work in progress, but I'm always amazed by the positive feedback. And I'm always amazed also that, you know, people are listening. So I just want to say, as always, thank you for listening and help us spread the word. And also special thanks to Israel Policy Forum and its supporters for making it all possible. Let's get to Michael and Shira. Hi, Michael. Hi, Shira. Welcome back to the second annual Israel Policy Pod End of Year Awards which we'll be handing out in just a second. Uh, and then we'll make some predictions for the coming year. Are you both ready? Are you both excited? Very excited. Super. Do you both have on your black tie dress? I'm sure Shira does. And I certainly, I, I wear black tie dress when I'm just sitting around my house with nothing going on, particularly not, you know, let alone when there's something this exciting going on. So yeah. I'm in my tuxedo. Tuxedo, black tie, full getup. I just don't buy it, Michael, because you only wear T-shirts. So let me point out, Shira, that you and I were actually in the same place together a week ago, week and a half ago, and I was wearing a tie. Were you wearing a tie? Oh, you were yes, wearing a tie. But that's the first time ever in my life I saw you wearing a tie. And even for that event, I did not wear a, a black tie a gown. So, so I guess that means... Neri, I believe in 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 celebrating in sweats. Uh huh. So so what you're saying is that I'm generally fancier and more put together than you are. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Anyone who's <laughs> ever watched an IPF webinar knows that you are not fancy, Michael. Fine, fine. You sit in your uh, daughter's <laughs> room with the light, the lilac uh, painted walls in t-shirts. Fine, I've been I've been discovered. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, 
Attire aside, we have the important business at hand, which is to explain and analyze and recap uh, what happened this past year. Uh, a lot happened this past year, which might be the understatement of this past year. Uh, just for context, I remember the second podcast I recorded in 2022 was an emergency pod with uh, journalist Anshul Pfeffer about whether Bibi Netanyahu would actually take a plea deal uh, in his corruption trial. And my second to last podcast of 2022, earlier this month, was with legal expert Susie Navot about how the incoming Netanyahu government was going to destroy the Israeli judicial system. So it's been a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, a lot has happened, obviously, which we'll get into right now. So without further ado, drum roll, please. The first Israel Policy Pod End of Year Award 2022 is for the biggest surprise of 2022. Uh, I'll take the prerogative to go first. My biggest surprise of 2022 was Edith Silman. Edith Silman, for those who recall, back in April, uh, she was the Yamina MK Knesset member who defected from the governing coalition led by her party head, Naftali Bennett, and she defected to the opposition, to the Netanyahu bloc. Uh, a huge surprise, because up until then, it seemed like things were fairly smooth sailing for the Bennett-Lapid government. Uh, they had passed a budget in the previous November. Uh, it seemed like it was fairly fairly secure. And then out of the blue, Edith Silman woke up in the morning and chose to defect, and thereby taking away the Bennett-Lapid coalition's parliamentary majority. Uh, really, to my mind, the definition of chaos theory, right? So Edith Sinman flaps her wings in the South Pacific, and a few months later, Itamar Benvir is the minister of police. Um, I mean, I'm, 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 cutting, I'm cutting down a few steps along the way, but uh, to my mind, that was the real kind of surprise and the real maybe hinge moment of 2022. Uh, Michael? What was your biggest surprise of 2022? I'll go with one that uh, I think was positive because I have a sneaking suspicion that um, <laughs> much of the rest of this podcast is, is going to be a bit gloomy. Um, my biggest surprise was the fact that there was no conflict between Israel and Hezbollah on, on the Lebanese border. There was a lot of speculation last spring, but particularly over the summer before the deal was reached over the maritime border and, and over the gas fields between Israel and Lebanon, that uh, there was going to be an escalation and there were increasing threats from Hassan Nasrallah, rhetorical threats toward Israel. There was speculation that the Iranians were going to activate Hezbollah as a way of putting pressure on, on Israel and, and the U.S. and the West more generally over JCPOA negotiations. Um, you heard you heard things from IDF officials about their concern that things were, were going to heat up and uh, thankfully, that that was averted. Um, yeah, I know there's, there's there was a debate afterwards to the extent to which Nasrallah's threats were were real or whether they were designed to extract concessions from Israel. But mm -hmm. you know, whatever whatever the case may be, there really was, I think, a, a serious fear that Israel was going to get into military escalation, uh, and that you know would would have been very serious and very damaging. So uh, I'm glad it didn't happen. And, and that's my surprise of the year. Very positive. I like that. We're nothing if not about positivity on the Israel policy pod. Uh, Shira, what was your 
biggest surprise of 2022. It's so funny because it's as if Michael and I not only coordinate our t-shirts, um, we also coordinate what we want to say. I was going to say that too, not just the aversion of violence, but also I think the maritime democration, you know, the, 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 the agreement between Israel and Lebanon, which really indirectly is an agreement between Israel and Hezbollah. Um, I think it's a huge surprise and we can, you know, We can downplay it as just something bureaucratic and marginal, but I think it's actually a positive, um, a positive, um, an interest-based agreement that could help with de-escalation in the future, not just write a, ver- a, a version of, of, of conflict uh, over the past year, which was really highly anticipated, as Michael said, but, but, but also maybe for the future. But I guess I have to go back to the, what for me is negative, Is that I think that all of us, um, as we were heading into Israeli elections, uh, anticipated that the, the right, you know, it's going to be a right wing government. I didn't, I, I did not anticipate the numbers. I didn't anticipate, uh, uh, the turnout of or, or uh, the results of the uh, Haredi voters, uh, the immense size, you know, the votes that Shas got and JTA, the Haredi parties uh, received. I did not um, think that the Israeli left would be decimated, essentially. And that um, even though the popular, in terms of popular votes, we're talking about the same numbers, right? Even roughly more for, for the um, anti sort of Netanyahu bloc, but, but creating which I'm sure we're going to discuss in this podcast, the most uh, right-wing Israeli coalition Israel is going to have, the most right-wing, the most uh, religious uh, coalition without it, uh, with very few uh, women, if any. We're not hearing about them now in the coalition agreements, but we're talking about very uh, small numbers, uh, if any, that really can set uh, Israel um, on a different course than what we've known Israel to be. Now it's, it's a big if because we don't know there's a new, no government yet. It hasn't sworn in. Um, but if, uh, they will implement even half of what's in the coalition agreements that we've seen, um, this is a big, a big surprise. And, uh, I think people in Israel and around the world, obviously, as those of you who have read the New York times editorial, uh, this week, um, um, witnessed this year. It's, it's a huge surprise. Okay. So you were really surprised by the results of the November 1st election and the, the strong showing of not just the Israeli right, but the Israeli far right and the ultra-Orthodox parties. Right, right. And then, you know, while we anticipated, I think I anticipated that, you know, Netanyahu will be able to form a government, but a very narrow coalition of 60 or 61 seats. We, I, I did not anticipate these numbers. 64 seats at the end. Okay. Uh, both very good choices. So on to our second award of 2022, the most underappreciated or undercovered event or story of the year. And just for context, uh, at the end of last year, uh, Michael, you had a very good nominee, which was the rise of the religious Zionism party, the Israeli far right. Uh, you said it wasn't uh, covered enough. It was kind of going under the radar and that it would uh, likely become even stronger force in Israeli politics. So good job by you, uh, pointing that out for our listeners, uh, an underappreciated story, uh, which obviously became very appreciated, uh, in recent months, given the results of the November 1st election. So Shira, 
we'll let you go first. What do you think in your mind was the most underappreciated, undercovered event or story of the past 12 months? So I think there were a few underappreciated events and uh, definitely underreported events, but I'll go with one that was really didn't get much attention, if any, in Israeli press and also, I think, very little attention in 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 Middle East policy circles in Washington. And this is the thaw in Saudi-Jordan relations. There were years of tension, which you probably remember, there were divergent views on various regional conflicts. Um, there were struggles over Jordan's custodianship of the uh, Temple Mount at the Holy Sites in Jerusalem. Uh, there was an alleged Saudi link to a coup attempt uh, to destabilize Jordan last year, uh, lots of like issues with 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 the Trump administration, and all of a sudden, uh, we're seeing visits by Mohammed bin Salman to Jordan. We see uh, the king with Crown Prince Prince Hussein uh, visit uh, Saudi Arabia. We see an engagement, family ties between the crown prince uh, to uh, Saudi Arabian royalty, um, uh, Rajwa al-Saif, uh, which can also, you know, help uh, cool some, some, some of the tensions. And we see uh, more uh, Saudi assistance to Jordan, economic assistance to Jordan. And I think that's, that's really uh, important. It's important in its own right. When we look at the tensions in Jordan, if you saw the demonstrations there uh, this week, demonstrations that are even concerning to <laughs> Abu Mazen, the Palestinians that are worried what's what's happening on sort of the east bank of the Jordan River. Um, but it's also interesting and important given that um, Jordan, of, 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 of Israel's neighbors, Jordan is perhaps uh, as concerned as the Palestinians what this right-wing government uh, means for them. Uh, King Abdullah of Jordan had very um, um, tense ties with Benjamin Netanyahu. And, uh, mm, and of course, and, to put it mildly, to put it mildly, right? Uh, so I don't think they're anticipating this this government coming in. There are a lot of people that in Jordan, in the royal uh, family, in the royal court, that believe that the Netanyahu, maybe not Netanyahu himself, but the, 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 this Israeli right really would like to see a Jordan as Palestine uh, as a solution. Um, they believe this is where where they are, and um, and. On the other hand, we see Netanyahu in his interviews with Al Arabiya, there's create, trying to create this spin, right? That uh, the next big uh, normalization accord is going to be with Saudi Arabia. Peace with Saudi is coming, and if really Saudi and Jordan have better uh, ties now, and Saudi uh, integrates Jordanian thinking into its own calculations, which, by the way, I think Netanyahu is totally. Um, I, th- I think it's a spin. I don't think Saudi is on the cusp of normalizing ties with Israel for. Variety of reasons, not just the Palestinians, for a variety of internal reasons and regional reasons and issues that they have uh, that have nothing to do with Israel. But uh, Jordanian interests factored into this are going to uh, uh, are going to make this prospect of normalization even more uh, distant. Uh, but maybe it can pull Saudi in for uh, bringing the Palestinian issue in. So this could be an interesting thing. I don't think it uh, fundamentally changes, right? There's still tensions between uh, Jordan and Saudi, but but the, we seem to be on a different uh, path uh, than we were just a year ago. Great choice. Uh, 
important choice. I like that uh, in our giving awards, you give awards, you give us awards too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I also look, listening back to uh, last year's end of year awards, I realized I was acting like uh, an Israeli political party head, i.e., a, a petty a petty dictator uh, trying <laughs> making making all kinds of rules. So I want to be a bit more gracious this year. Uh, but that was a good choice. I like that Jordan uh, perennially underappreciated and undercovered as a story. Michael, what's your nominee for underappreciated or undercovered event or story of the past year? I'm not sure that mine is undercovered, but I, I do think it's underappreciated. Uh, and that is the various administrative changes that we have seen the incoming government make and the old government make. Um, and I'm not, I'm not as concerned for, for the purposes of this one with the substance of them. But, you know, we've now had over the past couple of years... This notion that if you need to form a government, then you just change the rules uh, and and you do what you need to do. So, you know, first we had uh, first we had this notion of a, a prime minister and an alternate prime minister, and you know that started already back in twenty twenty one. Here was twenty twenty, right? So we're already you know we're already a bunch of years past this, but right. you know that that continued with the Bennett Lapid government. Um, and, you know, this time around, as the incoming government is, uh, is about to take power, so we see, again, this whole issue of administrative changes within, within ministries. We have this idea now of a junior minister in the defense ministry who's going to be in charge of uh, some things in the West Bank that, that they claim are not security related. So, you know, Area C and COGOT and the civil administration. Uh, within the education ministry, there are now, by my count, four or five different people who have different power over education issues. You're going to have the education minister, but we now have Avi Maoz operating out of the prime minister's office, and he's in charge of all, uh, effectively, everything that isn't core curriculum. Uh, it seems like Shas is going to be in charge uh, of community centers and education that takes place there. There are a few other people that have, that have their hands in different mm -hmm. things. We have this notion of constantly amending basic laws, which is what's been holding up uh, the swearing in of the prospective Netanyahu government because they have to not they have to they have to change both basic laws but they also have to change non basic laws so that Arye Dari can can serve as a minister and, and that his conviction won't be considered moral turpitude um, and you know messing around with the public security ministry to make it the national security ministry and, and take some of the powers that uh, that now lie in the defense ministry and, and give it uh, give it over to this new national security ministry and changing the balance between the minister and the police commissioner. Uh, we have this notion of just changing the the rules of the political game back and forth. So, you know, the, uh, the Bennett-Lapid government changed a rule where you needed one third of a party, one third of the MKs from a party if they wanted to break away and form a separate faction. Um, the Bennett-Lapid government changed it so that it wasn't a third. It was you only needed four MKs, and they did that because they were hoping to get some Likud defectors. Uh, and now the... And, exactly. and now they just changed it because Netanyahu is worried about Right, Likud exactly. Defectors. Now they change it back to one third. Uh, and then you have this new proposal that came up this week that Likud is pushing where they want to require primaries for parties that have 15% or more of Knesset seats. Because, uh, of course, the only party that will apply to that doesn't have a primary now is Yeshatid, and, and they want to screw around with Yair Lapid. So, you know, you have all this going on, and um, yes. some of these maybe make sense substantively and conceptually, and, and some of them don't. But I think the point is, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about governance in Israel, um, 
and this is separate from separate from the issue of democracy, but just basic governance. If you keep on changing the rules of the game and you keep on changing basic laws and you keep on changing the structure of the government, it's going to, if it hasn't already, hollow out any notion of, of governance and stability. And uh, it's going to make everything going forward more difficult and certainly more political. And so I think so many people, and, and I've been doing this as well, have been focusing on, on some of these substantive changes, particularly from my perspective within the defense ministry, and, and a lot of people are focused on what's going on with Ben Greer's ministry. Um, but leaving that aside, I, I think that people mm-hmm. really uh, aren't appreciating the impact this is going to have on Israel's system of governance when you just change the rules every single time there's a new election so that you can make it easier to form a government and, and hand out favors. Um, that's that, that's it's not a good it's not a good development. And uh, I, I hope that there's a way to arrest it. So the Israeli political system like Plato. Exactly. Uh, way too way too flexible. Or as Professor Susie Navot said early this month on the, this podcast, the unbearable lightness of the Israeli democratic system where anything is possible so long as you have a parliamentary majority. Uh, my choice for the most underappreciated event or story of the past year, uh, I'm going to piggyback on what you just said, Michael, but I'm going to go with the substance. Uh, I think the results of November 1st and really the outcry over the past two months about what this new Netanyahu government is planning on doing and will likely do to Israel's Supreme Court, uh, the police that you mentioned, uh, the administrative branches and organs of the IDF in the West Bank, and so on and so forth. Really, the the pillars, many of the pillars of the liberal Israeli democratic system are under threat. And I, for one, was appalled or shocked or whatever adjective you want to use when in midsummer and leading up to the November 1st election, all this wasn't taken into account. It was, in a literal sense, underappreciated that if Netanyahu and his right-wing allies were to win the election, that this would be the outcome. And they all said it openly. They all said it openly, whether Likud officials or the Haredi politicians or Ben Gvir or Smotrich on the far right, it was very clear, at least to my mind, that this would be the most likely outcome. And so... It went under the radar, uh, not only, by the way, by foreign observers or foreign officials or foreign reporters, but even by Israelis and not just the public. Um, It was really uh, shocking to my mind that the now outgoing government led by Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz and all the others in the anti-Netanyahu camp didn't make this more of an issue and didn't actually explain to the Israeli public that this election was not just like the numerous ones that took place before over the past three years, but that it was likely and liable to be very, very different if Netanyahu won, um, which came to pass. And so uh, I think it was definitely underappreciated. It was definitely undercovered, but not by this podcast, I want to say. We tried to we tried to warn people, uh, and now we're likely going to be dealing with the ramifications of Netanyahu's victory. Netanyahu and his right-wing allies and their victory. So that is my nominee uh, for most underappreciated story of the past year. Um, moving right along, Neri, I don't, I don't, yep. I don't think enough people, I don't think enough people refer refer to you in, in this podcast as Churchillian in terms of you know, identifying <laughs> identifying the warning ahead of time. And, I, I don't want to <laughs> and getting ignored. What does Netanyahu always say? I'm, you know, I'm the first to identify. 
He likes to say, oh, I was the first to identify this threat, that threat, whether it's Iran or COVID or whatever (laughs) you want to say. So I don't want to say I was the first to identify. Um, Nobody is... uh, as ever called me Churchillian, we don't want to. We don't want to really put that out there. Although we're we're putting that out there. Um, I think the, more, the moral of the story is that more people need to be listening to the Israel Policy Pod. We'll we'll just go with that. Uh, moving right along, third award, which is a good one, the biggest loser of 2022. Now, last year, uh, according according to the the whims of this podcast host and the rules that I just made up, uh, we made Bibi Netanyahu ineligible last year as the biggest loser because it was just so obvious uh, that he was the year's biggest loser because he was finally toppled from power after 12 straight years as prime minister. Uh, My, how things change in Israel. So uh, this year, Bibi is now eligible, uh, likely not as the biggest loser of 2022. So Michael, who is your nominee for the biggest loser? I'm going to go with Joe Biden and Tony Blinken. Oh. Not because of anything that, not because of anything that they themselves have done, but because of the situation in which they they now find themselves. Um you know when when we when we last <laughs> when we last saw them before November 1st, they were coming off a year where uh, they had a government in Israel that they found relatively easy to work with and and one with whom they were relying on on a lot of things. They were dealing with uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, who were not trying to tear down Israel's justice system or make any make any big far-reaching changes, really to, to much of anything, um, they were going along with with American American priorities for the most part. Um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was on the U.S. back burner, which is where Biden and Blinken seem seem to like it, uh, since. They don't really want to have to deal with it on on an ongoing basis. And now here they are uh, as we leave 2022 and enter 2023. And they have Bibi Netanyahu back. And obviously that in itself, I think, um, would be uh, would be a bit challenging for them, given his relationship with the last Democratic administration before this one. But it's more than that. They're now facing constant questions about uh, are you going to deal with with members of this government? You know, you're going to meet with Bibi, but are you going to meet with Ben Gvir? Are you going to meet with Smotrich? Uh, what are you going to do if if Israel passes a, a high court override? What are you going to do if Israel legalizes a legal outpost? What are you going to do if Israel applies sovereignty to the West Bank? All these things that they that they didn't have to deal with or contemplate before, all of a sudden they now have to deal with and contemplate. And given that there are a host of other issues that they want to be dealing with. Uh, I think that uh, both of them are now going to be in for a bit of a rougher ride. Um, certainly, they're going to have to pay more attention to Israeli-Palestinian issues. Uh, and so I think that 2023 on this front is probably going to be more unpleasant for them than 2022 was. I think that's a fair assessment, uh, especially since, like you said, they were very comfortable and very supportive, even if uh, behind closed doors, of the bennett Lapid coalition. They were very happy to uh, to see that wide and heterogeneous coalition uh, be in power in Israel. Uh, Shira, what's your nominee for the biggest loser of 2022? What did I say was the biggest loser of 2021? Uh, I don't remember. That's a good question. If I were a professional podcast host, which I pretend to be, I would have this answer for you. Um, Hmm. I think you might have said perhaps Abu Mazen. 
It might have been it might have been Palestinian related, but okay. Well, I'll go with Israeli related this time then. Okay. I I mean it's, it's kind Actually, of the I'm pretty, obvious. I'm pretty I'm pretty sure it was Abu Mazen because it was right after it was coming out of the May 2021 war and he was uh, irrelevant and Hamas seemed to be ascendant uh, after the May 2021 war. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, I'll go with with an Israeli loser this time. Um, so I think the obvious choice, even though it's 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 fairly simple, would be the Meretz party. Okay. Uh, the Meretz political party is, you know, sort of the left, the most leftist Zionist party um, in Israeli Knesset, which earned 3.14% of the vote uh, below the electoral threshold of 3.25%. So we just needed... Uh, 3,800, 3,800 more votes to pass that line. Uh, it's a very small number. And it's just, uh, it's difficult to imagine. And I, I'll, I'll quote Zahava Galon, who's the former Merit's uh, leader, who sort of came back to uh, lead the party and to resurrect it, uh, ho- hoping to save it from a downfall. But it's very hard to imagine uh, you know, the the Israeli Knesset without merits, but with uh, the ideological descendants of uh, the Kahane uh, movement. And this is where we are today. Now, it's true, we can say, you know, in terms of the popular votes, uh, we had the same numbers between the blocks, as I said it before, but, but really merits, um, merits is gone. And I don't know if it's reversible. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know, think, think, you know, if it's if it's merits as a sort of a, a symbol of the Israeli left. Uh, you look at labor, which also came came back with with fairly uh, small uh, numbers. Yeshatid is, I guess, central left, trying to be more a centrist party. So, what does it mean um, for 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 this sect of Israeli? Uh, public and also for the legacy of this party. You know, this party used to be, you had people like Shulamit Aloni and Yossi Sarid, legends um, mm-hmm. in the Israeli political system and Israeli history, really. And it's gone. It's out of the parliament. So I'll go with that. Yeah. Um, Israeli left, a very good choice, I have to say, for the biggest loser of 2022, for obvious reasons. Uh, my choice, I'm going to go the slightly rightward direction. I'm going to pick the moderate anti-Netanyahu Israeli right as the biggest loser of 2022. Uh, these these politicians and parties uh, broke from Netanyahu, and we're talking whether it's Naftali Bennett and Nayelet Sheked or Gidon Saar, or even to a certain extent, Avigdor Lieberman, and by association, even Benny Gantz and Zev Elkin, who uh, allied themselves with Gidon Saar. And either these politicians are no longer in politics, like Naftali Bennett and Ayala Chaked, or really they were kind of cut down to size and failed in their primary task, to my mind, which was to draw moderate right-wing voters away from the pro-Netanyahu bloc. And so if you just look at the numbers, they, they just didn't, they didn't uh, get the job done. And didn't succeed in in convincing enough to to really break with Netanyahu like they did as politicians, uh, and so now you're dealing with the consequence that instead of 
say, right-wing parties, pro-settler parties like Yamina, led by Bennett and Shaked, who, for all their faults, uh, were fairly reasonable in many policy aspects, right, in terms of the rule of law and the proper administration of um, the Israeli system writ large. Uh, and instead of them, you have people like Petzl Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, uh, who, by the way, Bennett refused to ally with Itamar Ben-Gvir, uh, previous election rounds, uh, because Bennett viewed him as beyond the pale. Um, and so from the heights of the prime minister's office, Bennett is now uh, in semi-retirement. El Chaked uh, will be out of a job as interior minister in a week or two and out of politics. Uh, Gidon Saar and Zev Elkin uh, and Benny Gantz um, will be in opposition. So really, to my mind, the biggest losers of 2022 were uh, the quote-unquote moderate right-wing anti-Netanyahu parties and politicians. Um, and again, I, you know, it's an open question to my mind whether this electorate in the current climate in, in Israel actually exists, or whether it's kind of, you know, like Bigfoot or a unicorn, uh, you know, this imaginary creature, which uh, they, the politicians at least pretend exists, but in reality, when push comes to shove, uh, actually don't support them and still for all his faults and all he says and does, uh, stick with Bibi Netanyahu. So that's my nominee. That's a that's a that's a good one, Nari. And and I'll just add, I, I think that you know, to your this question this question about uh, about unicorns. Um, uh, to me, the biggest question for Israeli politics going forward is what happens to these Dati Lumi voters who this time, with seemingly no alternative, voted for. Uh, religious Zionism and Otsma Yehudit, and if something is going to, if something is going to replace Yamina to give them somewhere to vote, or if this is just a transformation of the sector going forward, and we're never, we're never going to see sort of a moderate Datilu Mi party again. Yeah, uh, you know, you just look at who the settlers voted for. The religious nationalists in Israel. Uh, people say that they're a lot more moderate than their public image would suggest, but all of them either likely voted for religious Zionism, for Smotrich, and not for, say, uh, Benny Gantz and Gidon Saar and Zev Elkin, or even Ayala Chaked, who ran and, and didn't make it into the next Knesset. That uh, all those people stuck with the, well, the far right. All right, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to strengthen support for advancing a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to preserve Israel's future as Jewish, democratic, and secure. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We are trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of the two-state solution, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, engage with our young professional network, IPF Atid, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at israelpolicyforum.org support.
Moving right along, the last award for 2022 goes to the biggest winner of the year. Uh, a lot of candidates, I'm sure. Shira, let's start with you. Who was the biggest winner in your mind? Um, I think I'll go with um, the Lions Den, um, Lions Den, Janine, Janine Brigades. This new, I, I can talk about the organization itself, but I think the interesting phenomena of Palestinian uh, armed groups that are combining violent resistance with popular resistance composed of, you know, different factions, many of them sons to fathers who serve in the Palestinian security forces, but you have, you know, former members of Fatah and Tanzim and Hamas and Islamic Jihad all working together while they're, parents and relatives could be fighting each other, um, basically opposing the IDF, opposing settlements, opposing the Palestinian Authority, right? Opposing opposing the PA, uh, using very sophisticated TikToks, social networks, and appealing to the Palestinian youth. And the lines then itself as a group, um, you know, it's largely disintegrated, but the phenomena is not gone. And it's very challenging, uh, both for Israel. It's also very challenging, uh, for the Palestinian authority. And, um, it re- receives support from, from the Palestinian youth. And, you know, on the flip side of, I, of this, I could tell you that if, you know, if there's another loser, except for the Israeli left, uh, it would be the Palestinian youth. It's not the loser. Of, they're not the losers of this year. They're the loser of the last decade. But if we look at the Palestinian youth, the average young Palestinian um, is highly educated, but with no jobs, with no job, with no prospect, postponing marriage because they can't provide, with no horizon, with no with no ability to go anywhere. Um, and really nothing that Israel and the international community has done over the past decade was for the, for these youth, right? If you look, look even at like work, work permits inside Israel, um, uh, they have to be older and married to be able to work in Israel because then they're considered less of a security threat. There hasn't been an economic development plan, uh, for Palestinian youth. So there's nothing really that's been done for them. No elections. No, no elections. No elections on the horizon to Many pick their own leaders. Many of them don't even remember what it's like to have elections, right? No elections, no leaders, no participation in the political parties. Uh, a government, uh, the Palestinian Authority, is really, um, it's a convenient partner for Israel because they're not choosing the way of terrorism and, and Abu Mazen is steadfast about his, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, opposition to violence. Uh but it's not a government that provides good services for its people, right? So, in a sense, that it's under it's 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 uh, I think interesting that these groups and you know I'm taking out the violent part of it, but but these these groups uh, resonate, uh, and this new form of struggle resonates with Palestinian youth. So I think uh, this was sort of the, this would be the winner. I'm not sure it's a positive winner, but but my winner of the year. It's a it's a great choice. They've came out of nowhere, really, right? 
and became a brand and a symbol of resistance for the Palestinian youth and the Palestinian public writ large uh, against everything, against Israel, against the occupation, against the settlements, against uh, Abu Mazen, against the uh, older affiliate uh, organized Palestinian groups. And yeah, you can, I guess, decimate them and arrest them and kill them off. Uh, but the idea uh, lives on at the very least in social media. Michael, what is your choice for the biggest winner of 2022? My biggest winner of 2022 is Bitsalas Modric. Okay. He is at this point the unquestioned political leader of the settler community, given that, uh, that his party really represents that sector with no real competition. I think that in many ways he is now the leader of the Israeli right. Um, mm. It's kind of amazing, actually. We haven't, I'm not sure we even really mentioned or spoken about Itamar Ben Gvir uh, up until now, but you can, you can make a case for either of them. But, you know, Smotrich, I think, is um, smarter and savvier and probably has longer staying power. Um, you know, he's also, he has, I think, leverage over Netanyahu that other people don't necessarily have because he has to be taken seriously. Let's remember that when Netanyahu was negotiating, way back before the formation of the Bennett Lapid government after uh, the fourth election with Ram and Mansour Abbas to try to form a government with them and, and get him to 61. It was Batalas Motrich who said, if you do that, I won't sit with you and then you won't have enough seats. So he seems to have a, a credibility with Netanyahu in terms of his threats, uh, which for in various ways, I, I think is... Um, I think in various ways is responsible for uh, some of the things we've seen Netanyahu give him in these coalition negotiations. And more importantly, from Smotrich's perspective, he now has control not over the not only over the finance ministry, but also over a real portion of the defense ministry. And it's the part that he cares about. He effectively now is going to be the most influential Israeli actor when it comes to deciding what gets built in Area C, both by Israelis and Palestinians, um, what gets torn down in Area C, uh, construction from Israelis and Palestinians. He is likely, likely more, more one side than the other. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, you know, he's, he's basically now the, 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 the settlements, the settlements minister and the governor of Palestinians living in Area C. Uh, and that is something that he has always wanted. He, he's an ideologue. He has a very, uh, distinct ideological worldview. Uh, I don't think that he has pretensions, let's say, of being prime minister of Israel. I think, I mean, and at this point, I wouldn't rule anything out, but I think, you know, he has, he has a real substantive program that he wants to implement, and it has to do with increasing Jewish presence and Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria. And he is now going to get to carry that out to its, to his heart's content and, I think that makes him the winner of 2022. It's a great choice. Uh, we should also mention that Smotrich, unlike Benvir, has history in cabinet, in government, serving with Netanyahu, unlike Benvir. So he knows he knows his quote-unquote boss up close and personal and maybe explains a lot of his negotiating tactics uh, in recent weeks. Uh, he didn't blink, Smotrich. And he got a lot of what he wanted from Netanyahu. And he was, by all accounts, a, a successful cabinet minister in the past. Um, and just that experience alone probably is going to make him a successful one going forward. 
successful on his terms. Yes, successful on his terms. Maybe not successful. Maybe not successful for the state of Israel writ large. <laughs> uh, okay. I yeah. I will tell you that I think it's really interesting when you mention Smotrich because it came to my um, attention that there was an attempt by. I think it was a, a, Bennett, a, a, a demand made by Naftali Bennett when Bugia alone, Moshe alone, was the Minister of Defense. Um, also, uh, to move authorities related to the civil administration to another ministry. Mm-hmm. And back then, <laughs> um, the chief of staff of the Minister of Defense at the time, uh, Bugia alone, said this will not happen. Bugia himself opposed it. And uh, the legal counsel of the Ministry of Defense uh, analyzed the implication of that suggested move, and it didn't happen. So, in fact, those bureaucratic uh, changes and switches and moves was not Smotrich's idea, but he's the first one to be able to pull this off. Um, so it's not just being in government before. He had good teachers. <laughs> uh, he knows the bureaucracy. He did his homework. And, he, um, and they also and, and, and they also have leverage over over Bibi. He has leverage over Bibi, uh, but Bibi was the prime minister when this demand was made in the past. Also true, true. Um, so my choice for the winner of the past year, uh, notwithstanding what I just said about Smotrich having leverage over Bibi Netanyahu, uh, is Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, I think he clearly won the year. Uh, As we said at the top, the year began with real, real possibility of Netanyahu actually taking a plea deal and retiring from politics. He ultimately did not accept that deal, uh, and he chose to fight on and chose to try to bring down the Bennett-Lapid government from opposition, which he succeeded. He forced another election, which he wanted, uh, and then he won that election, finally, uh, fifth times a charm, uh, going back to twenty to late 2019. So he finally won the election victory that he sought for so many years. Uh, again, be careful what you wish for. Now he's got the headache of uh, dealing with Batello Smotrich and Itamar Benvir and whatever else is going to come down the pike uh, in the coming year. Uh, but in terms of his ultimate goal, he succeeded. Uh, and in terms of what likely is his ultimate objective, uh, which is probably squashing the corruption trial against him, uh, either getting the case thrown out or suspending proceedings or even throwing out the actual uh, legal charges against him, whatever avenue he chooses to take, uh, he now has that option because he not only has a parliamentary majority, he has a very pliant and very willing uh, coalition government that will likely support him in whatever decision he chooses to take. So uh, Bibi Netanyahu, from the depth of the late 2021, early 2022, is now, to my mind, the winner of the past year. So that is my nominee. Uh, Any honorable mentions before we get to our predictions? Who else uh, do you think won the year? Shira Michael. I I actually want to... Do a, a, a counterintuitive one. I'm going to say Yair Lapid. Yair Lapid wanted to be prime minister of Israel for a long time. Um, and obviously, he ends the year on a down note. Uh, but Yair Lapid ended up as prime minister of Israel. 
Uh, and it didn't actually have to be that way because, as we know, Naftali Bennett, when the government fell, could have remained as prime minister until the election and, and through the transitional period. Um, but uh, he didn't. And Yair Lapid actually had a pretty good year up until November 1st. You know, he was a high profile foreign minister. Uh, he convened a, 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 Negev, a Negev forum meeting. Um, he then got to be prime minister. Uh, he got to he got to host a presidential visit to Israel. He was prime minister when when Biden visited over the summer. So, um, notwithstanding everything that's happened since November first, I'm I'm going to say Yair Lapid is an honorable mention. And he finally also broke the 20 seat glass ceiling that he had had for a decade since he entered politics, winning yes. 24 seats. Right. It's a good choice. Shira, any honorable mentions for? The winner of 2022? Um, oh, yeah, of course I have one. Are you kidding? Qatar. <laughs> it's unbelievable that without, before, with all the criticism that Qatar um, uh, rightfully earned, right, uh, leading up to the World Cup with, uh, I don't know how many uh, construction workers died building those stadiums that who knows what's going to be done with them now. Um uh, the 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 restrictions on LGBT suspected uh, uh, influence over other uh, events um, in in you know in in Qatar no sale of alcohol like this was supposed to be or people predicted this is not going to be a good World Cup and it turned out to be an amazing one amazing amazing um, so I think Qatar what what I'm, and I'm sure they're very savvy and they will. Uh, leverage this uh, to the de- diplomatic arena also. But really, I mean, it's not just you don't have to be an Argentina or, you know, Messi fan uh, to, to uh, I think, agree that this was one of the World Cup, the best World Cups ever, definitely the final game. And, uh, you know, it was uh, Qatar Kat- Kat- was the host. So now you're speaking my language, Shira. And thank you for... Sorry. No, no, th- thank you. Jogging my memory. I think... Were you, were you going to say that? No, but I, I think it is without any kind of hyperbole or, or irony to it, I think a big winner, at least coming out of the World Cup, is is Palestine and the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause, where really it was overwhelming that every Arab North African team and their fans uh, either flew the Palestinian flag or were chanting uh, pro-Palestinian songs in, in the stands uh, and really made it, made it a high-profile issue, arguably the only political issue allowed. Uh, during the past month's World Cup. And Palestinians, I'm sure both of you have heard this, the Palestinian people themselves were touched and they, they've they gone around saying we're, we were the 33rd team participating in the World Cup uh, because it was such a high high profile issue. And by the way, here amongst Israelis and, and Israeli fans, and there are many of them who watch the World Cup religiously, uh, it came as a bit of a shock that the Palestinian issue still resonated so strongly, not only in the Arab world, right, amongst publics, after years of, uh, let's say, various Israeli leaders and politicians saying, well, the Palestinian issue doesn't matter anymore. Nobody in the world really cares anymore, least of which are are the Arab states who keep signing peace deals with us. Uh, we can just do whatever you want vis-a-vis uh, the conflict and the West Bank and the settlements and so on and so forth. And so I think it came as a real shock for Israelis sitting at home or even Israelis that went to Qatar uh, to find out, and by the way, Israeli journalists who went to Qatar, and for them to find out that, uh, lo and behold, people still care a great deal about the Palestinian cause. 
So I think at least for the final month or two of 2022, uh, the Palestinian people and the Palestinian cause came out as a big winner. Right. And those two are not disconnected, right? The fact is that Qatar um, allowed, enabled, encouraged this Palestinian, you know, pro-Palestinian show of support, which, of course, if the World Cup, you know, took place in Morocco or in neighboring UAE, you wouldn't see Palestinian flags because these probably... You don't think so? I don't think so. They wouldn't... I mean, the Emiratis would not allow them. Hmm. Interesting. I think the Moroccans probably would have, though. Yeah, but not at the same level. I, I don't know. For my... I, I was sent... Uh, kind of cell phone video of Moroccan fans inside the stadiums and outside the stadiums chanting pro-Palestinian songs uh, to to support on the Moroccan team on the field. Uh, I think... I'm not saying that the Moroccans would not support it or the, the Arabs don't genuinely, the Arab publics don't genuinely support this cause, but we know... Uh, it wouldn't be allowed. You know, freedom of expression on this issue is is, is not, uh, is, is uh, severely curtailed, especially in the Emirates. Um, and also Morocco. So, so I think this also goes uh, hand in hand with with Qatar's agenda. Uh, but but it's not like they uh, paid people to carry Palestinian flags. It's exactly what you said. Yeah. As much as people in Israel would like to see the Palestinian issue is gone, it's not gone. It's not gone. Um, so yes, a nice honorable mention. Uh, okay. Without further ado, let's go to our predictions for 2023. Um, we always like to say it's, you know, the past year or the coming year will be historic or momentous in Israel. Uh, I think this time in the coming year happens to be maybe more true than in past years. Uh, so in 2023, we'll have uh, not just a new Netanyahu government taking power, uh, but also we're going to mark the 75th anniversary for Israel's founding. So uh, really a momentous year in many respects. Uh, take these predictions with a grain of salt, uh, last year I paraphrased our friend and regular podcast guest Amos Harel. Uh, these predictions aren't worth the paper they're not written on, uh, not least of which because it's, this is a podcast. Um, but last year, we should mention, uh, we did pretty well. So Shira, you may not remember this, but you predicted for 2022 that uh, Israel would continue and continuously expand uh, its policy vis-a-vis -vis Gaza, uh, more work permits, more humanitarian easing measures and the like, uh, which I think definitely bore bore fruit and at least... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, good job yeah. by you. Uh, and also, <laughs> uh, by the way, the you know, aside from the August uh, weekend escalation between Israel and Islamic Jihad, uh, it was the quietest year between Israel and Hamas. Uh, arguably for for many years, uh, and I think primarily due to to those uh, kind of easing measures and Israeli policy going deeper and wider uh, in terms of what uh, it's allowed uh, for for Gaza. Um, I predicted increased violence in the West Bank, uh, especially between Palestinians and Israeli settlers. So unfortunately, that also uh, turned out to be correct, uh, Michael. You had two predictions for 2022. Uh, you predicted that you'd once again make it back to Israel after the various COVID uh, lockdowns and travel restrictions. So I think, which I, which I did, which I did on four separate occasions. So yes, in spades. So you were yeah. definitely right about that, and and thankfully, uh, yes, uh, COVID is <laughs> for the most part, I suppose, behind us. Uh, but you also predicted that near Barkat, 
would be the head of Likud by the end of mm-hmm. 2022. So a mixed bag. Uh, not yeah. your fault. Not your fault. Um, I'd say better, better, a better, a better year for me than it was for you, for Nir Barkat. Yes, yes, and uh, it remains to be seen what Nir Barkat will will get or not get uh, from Bibi Netanyahu in terms of ministerial positions. Remains to be seen. Um, so let's do predictions for the coming year, and uh, well, anything is possible. I think in twenty twenty three, Shira. Um, so I mean. It's it's hard to know, right? And we have uh, growing violence already in the West Bank. So so uh, betting on further escalation uh, is just kind of not fair. Um, but I think that given that the Palestinian Authority at this moment, and assuming it continues to survive uh, in its current form uh, to, to, uh, during this 2023, um, this PA uh, doesn't see, you know, sort of diplomatic peace process with Israel, and it doesn't want violence. Um, I think they're going to go and adopt a strategy of more um, unilateral uh, measures. Uh, we have a decision on the, you know, International Court of Justice uh, coming, uh, I guess it's in 2022, but December 2022, uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court, uh, the Palestinian leaders um, uh, had a meeting with the principal uh, investigator there uh, very recently. It could go to um, uh, joining some, you know, um, international treaties. We can see uh, popular protest. There's also, the, the, of course, the threat of um, some, some form of... Uh, uh, suspending coordination with Israel, a threat of elections, uh, maybe even an economic boycott. They can decide it. I don't know. There's no like Israeli dairy products in the West Bank. That happened before, right? Um, and and I think Israel would will respond to that with with its own sort of unilateral measures, which can you know start with like freezing. Uh, work permits inside Israel, VIP permits to um, PA heads, uh, of course, the, the revenue, uh, the, the tax revenues that Israel collects on on, on, the, the, on behalf of the PA, which is always a measure of enforcement. And, and uh, we're, I, we can see sort of a spiraling, um, sorry, a, vis- a vicious cycle of spiraling uh, 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 unilateral measures that can get very, uh, very ugly and very dangerous uh, b- below the threshold of violent conflict. Uh, but of course, it's all connected, and we're already, um, you know, the, the the sort of the West Bank is tittering on the brink. Really, uh, the PA is is very weak. So uh, we're just going to add more and more pressures, but coming from the top down. Uh, which I think uh, is something to look out for and make concrete recommendations, which I would suggest to Israel, you know, be, be, be sort of the grown up in the room and, uh, and, uh, and um, um, weigh carefully the possible, you know, sort of ramifications, the implications of, of uh, Israeli responses. Yes. Uh, be the adult in the room, but difficult to do when you have Smotrich and Ben uh, in the security cabinet. Right, when you have toddlers with agenda in the room instead. Well put, Shira. With that ray of sunshine, uh, Michael, what's your prediction for 2023? Well, obviously my prediction is that Nir Barkat is going to be the education minister of the state of Israel. <laughs> Joking. Uh, although actually he might be. He'd be- uh, 
I think he, I think he would take that gladly at this point. Yeah, I think, I think he would. (laughs) Um, No, my, my prediction is that there's been a lot of concern about uh, what's going to happen in the West Bank. And I think that people are focused on a lot of the high profile, big splashy things. So legalization of outposts and possible application of sovereignty and, you know, who, who knows, who knows even, even down the road annexation, um, you know, and I, I've heard concern on the Palestinian side, legitimate concern about, uh, about they're, they're worried about expulsions. If there's, if there's violence, you know, these are all very big things. Um, I think that what we're likelier to see in 2023 is going to be the prosecution of what the Israeli right calls the war over area C. And, it's something that the Israeli right has been gearing up for. It's something that is um, very much on on Smotrich's plate, and you know that means I'm not saying these other things won't happen, but it means more of the the mundane things that are already well within the power of the Israeli government to do, but just putting them on steroids. And so, you know, when we think about convening the Supreme Planning Commission. Um, much more often when we think about uh, approving much more Israeli construction, when we think about in particular uh, demolitions of Palestinian structures in Area C and, and resuming the lockdown on, uh, on building permits for them that really was in place for a dozen years under the previous Netanyahu regime. Uh, I think that all of these things are, are, are going to happen very quickly because they aren't going to spark the same type of international pressure that you'll see from something like annexation. Uh, And um, also because to the extent that Netanyahu is going to want to try to calm things down and and put a put a spin on this for the international community, I think he's going to try to argue that that this is just business as usual. Nothing has really changed. And using the powers that already exist to, for instance, demolish Khan al-Akhmar and uh, evict people from Masafrayata, those will certainly spark concern in the U.S. and in the EU and in other places, but it's not going to bring the same type of response that something like application of sovereignty to Area C would bring. So uh, while I don't rule out the bigger things, I think that we're likely to see a six to eight, six to eight month period of these smaller things in, in, in this idea of a war for Area C where you keep on changing facts on the ground, but you just do it as quickly as you possibly can do it uh, before you move on to the bigger things, such as changing the actual status of the territory. Yeah. Uh, the, I guess it's an allegory, right, that you hear all the time here in Israel right now is the boiling frog. Right. Where slowly, slowly temperature goes up and you, and i.e. all of us, don't realize that we're actually the frog getting boiled. So I think uh, I think that's a likely choice, unfortunately, for 2023 as well. Um, my prediction for the coming year, and I've said this again, but it's worth repeating. I I view even in the coming weeks, right? It won't. It might be very quick in coming. Uh, is a constitutional crisis, and really, perhaps either mass resignations or mass firings uh, amongst and of the Israeli civil servant class, uh, what's called here the gatekeepers. So we're talking perhaps uh, Supreme Court justices, attorney generals, uh, ministerial legal advisors, even senior IDF officers, uh, and so on and so forth. 
Um, and you're already kind of seeing public clashes, even before the Netanyahu government has officially taken power, between, say, Itamar Ben-Gvir as the Minister of National Security and the Israel Police Commissioner, Kobi Shabtai. And we've already seen dust-ups between the Israeli right and the IDF top brass over rules of engagement in the West Bank and the proper conduct for Israeli soldiers. Uh, we're already seeing the Attorney General issue very public warnings about the Netanyahu government's plans for quote-unquote reform of the judiciary. Uh, and the Attorney General even, I think, what, two days ago came out and said, if these plans are enacted, then Israel's genuine standing as a liberal democracy will be fatally compromised. Um, and the judges have also said the same. The lawyer syndicate has also said the same. And so, again, it bears repeating. At a certain point, the the dilemma that a lot of these gatekeepers will be faced with is, do I stay in my position despite all the pressure and the attacks on either me personally or the institution that I represent uh, and try to kind of block or uh, ameliorate the plans of, of the current government? Or do I choose to resign in protest and thereby trigger a kind of bigger and more public outcry, uh, whether amongst the media or the Israeli public? Uh, and I, I think that scenario isn't, isn't too far away, unfortunately. Uh, and so it remains to be seen. Again, we, we don't know how far the incoming government will take uh, their various plans. But like we've said here and others have said in other places, uh, if even a fraction of what the new incoming Israeli government is planning is actually enacted, uh, then Israel um, will likely be a very different place. So I can assume from this, you are not of the view that Bibi Netanyahu is, is going to be the responsible responsible break on on some of the extremist things coming down the pike and that the the signaling this week that he's going to meet with the attorney general or attorney general and, and Esther Hayut and uh, prevent some of these changes from happening um, I assume you don't you don't buy that I think there's a lot of gaslighting going on uh, and I use that term deliberately I know I know it's a very popular term these days but I think a lot of what we're seeing now especially in terms of the public remarks by Netanyahu himself or others you know they're kind of trying to play the magic trick where hey look you know nobody's going to touch the say gay pride parade in either Jerusalem or Tel Aviv but that's not really the issue I mean it is an important issue but I don't believe even this new Israeli government will go so far as to cancel the gay pride parades here um, what I am fearful of is that this uh, new government will pass an override clause uh, undermining the judicial review power of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think they will likely go after the institution of the attorney general and kind of divide up the roles and undermine the, the power of uh, any legal stop on government decisions. Uh, you know, you already touched on the issue of the administration and essentially the governance of the West Bank and what will happen, what will be allowed to happen in the settlements and vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians and Area C of the West Bank. Um, I think those are more, shall we say, clear and present dangers than a lot of, say, the Haredis want to cancel football matches on Saturdays or the Haredis are planning on stopping uh, electricity generation on the Shabbat, on Shabbat. Uh, I think those things are... 
are, I think, uh, floated out there to to kind of gaslight us into saying, well, you know, look at everything Bibi Netanyahu is doing to uh, to put a check on his more extreme partners in the incoming government. Yeah, I think uh, I think I, I, I certainly agree with you on on this one. So um, this is this is a year where I hope our predictions turn out to, turn out to be incorrect. <laughs> Yeah, by the way, I, I'd be very happy if uh, we're all proven wrong and uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, uh, as they say, you know, moderates uh, after he enters office like everyone else has moderated once the, the responsibility and grave authority that they have in their hands uh, uh, comes to the fore and they realize uh, that they have to govern for all of Israel and not just uh, their narrow sectoral right-wing base. Um you know, I'd be happy to be proven wrong, but uh, I think we're dealing with a, a different kettle of fish here in terms of Netanyahu's uh, partners. And and by the way, um, look at everything that Netanyahu has already given them. So maybe we're dealing with a different Bibi Netanyahu now. With that rosy image in our minds, uh, Michael Shira, thank you so much as always for your time today and uh, for the past year. And uh, regardless of what happens in 2023, uh, you'll come on the Israel Policy Pod and we'll explain it and break it down for all our listeners. So thank you again. Thanks so much, Nari. Bye. Thank you. Okay. That was Michael Coplo and Shira Efron. Many thanks, as always, to them for their generous time and insights. Also, a special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. We'll be back in the new year with more Israel Policy Pods, and oh, what a year it will likely be. Until then, have a healthy and happy holiday season. Chag Sameach, Merry Christmas, and again, and as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.